0: Hello, and welcome to Call to Queer, where we hold space for the queer Mormon women, genderqueer, and intersex experiences. I'm Colette, and my pronouns are she, her.
1: And I'm Kate, my
0: pronouns are she, they. Today, we are interviewing Sam Webster, and we're so excited for this conversation. But before we jump into that, we wanted to start off by seeing what brought us Queer Joy this week. So, Kate, what brought you Queer
1: Joy this week? Yeah, lots of stuff. I've been paying attention to a lot of different things, but... Namely, I've been in Romania for about eight months now, and I'm the American that people know, at least. They're, they're at least like, oh yeah, we recognize the American around here. And it's been really cool for the past few weeks, actually, to recognize that people are starting to feel more comfortable talking to me about their gender and what they think about their gender based on just like seeing me and me being visible has created questions for them about what their gender means. So that's been really cool. It's been neat to see.
0: That's so cool. It's hard sometimes to have those conversations. So I love that they're getting comfortable asking those questions and considering for themselves. That's really cool. Yeah. All right, cool. How about you? So my queer joy actually involves Sam and their girls. I've been sick this week, but Sam was really sweet and brought over some food one day and their girls made little pictures for me and drawings. And then another day they came over again and we were just hanging on talking and their youngest made another drawing for me. And this time it was of both me and this, their youngest kid and it had a rainbow and it was just really sweet. And so I added it to my rainbow wall art She knows I love rainbows, and it was just a really cute little picture. So that was my queer joy.
1: I love that. So many rainbows at your house, and now another one. I love that.
0: You can never have too many rainbows. Can
1: never (laughs) have too many rainbows, especially right before June.
0: Yeah. All rainbows all the time during June, especially. (laughs) All right, Sam, what was your queer joy for the week? Yeah. So I am, my
2: queer joy for the week also has to do with rainbows. I've got, where I'm living right now, I have a rainbow bench that's out in front of my house. And then in my kids' room, which faces the sidewalk and the road, but we have a pride flag that just hangs in the window. But it's on the inside. I think I was a little nervous, like moving, you never know the kind of like neighborhood you're moving into. And I was like, I didn't wanna lose have some have the flag be stolen. So it's hanging in the window on the inside. And it was actually at the beginning of the school year, my oldest was making friends at school and they had come home one day and they're like, mom, do you have any extra flags? And I was like, uh, yes. Why? (laughs) Because I'm never sure where she's going with it. And she's like, well, I have a friend that wants to come out to her parents. And so she needs a flag so she can come out to her parents. And I was like one of those moments where I'm like, is this kid safe? Are they in a safe environment? I don't even know this kid. Like maybe like we should have some discussion. And so she brought her friend home the next day. And I just, I was like this, I'm a stranger to this kid. So I didn't want to overstep my boundaries, but I'm like, I don't want to send a flag home with a kid that's in a bad situation. And so we were able to chat and they told me that their brother was already out to their parents and they just wanted to come out and weren't quite sure how to do it, but that they felt safe. They felt comfortable. It was okay. And it ended up being a really good experience. This kid is now my kid's best friend and they do a bunch of stuff together. This past week, they had Greek plays at the school and they, it was the, Oh, I'm going to botch the names hippomenus in Atlanta. It's a story of the fastest girl. She wins all these races and Anyone who races against her, if they don't beat her, like they get killed. And so the only time she'll marry someone is if they can beat her. And so Hippomenus goes and asks the gods for help. And they give him some apples to like throw on the race so that it stops Atlanta and slows her down so that he can win. But as these sixth graders are demonstrating or acting out the play, this friend is Acting out one of the potential lovers of Atlanta and is like running, and she was all in. She was more, I'm so in love with Atlanta than like anybody else was. <laughs> and it was one of those moments where it's like, here is this community that's been created. And I know it's not just her, I know there's been like a lot of what I'm hearing from my sixth grader coming home from school. There's a lot of just openness around questioning your sexuality and your gender identity and having the space to figure that out. And especially within their friend groups, within their classroom, just like just that questioning and the ability to be fluid in it, which I think is so awesome because I just sit and watch. It's like, I don't have to do much. I'm just sitting back and watching. The most I have to do is Correct drama (laughs) when it comes up (laughs) um, and kind of walk her through that. But to be able to have started at the beginning of the year with just a lot of worry about going into a new space, a new neighborhood, a new school and wondering what their experience was going to be like and worrying about, you know, this friend in particular to here we are at the end of the year. They're playing a Greek play and in a very gender specific role you kind of had a lot of gender roles that were switched that the kids asked to be switched. But this one in particular is one I noticed just because I knew that backstory. And for her to just be like, yes, I love Atlanta, I'm going to win. Like just even in a play to have that be the safe space just really brought like a sense of fulfillment almost. Like we we started in an unknown space and now here's what that space has turned into for these kids in this sixth grade class.
0: That's really cool. Thank you so much for sharing that story, Sam. That's really awesome and to have your 12 year old to have that sort of freedom is just amazing so we're excited for you to be on your first podcast ever with us Sam we're very honored and we're excited yeah. for you to <laughs> introduce yourself I, I know it was the, it was a struggle to get me to agree so thanks for being <laughs> patient with me <laughs> Yeah, so for listeners, Sam was one of the first people I wanted to interview on the podcast. Sam's one of my really close friends, and I think their story's amazing, whatever they decide to share. But let's have the listeners get to know you and why I think you're so amazing. You mind jumping into your Queer in 60 seconds, and we'll go from there? Yeah, sure. So I was kind of thinking about
2: what I wanted to to share. I've been doing a lot of scholarship writing recently. And so as I'm doing the scholarship writing, I'm also really... honing in on what's my story, especially what do I share publicly. And I really appreciate just the safe space that you two have created in feeling that trust and that safety to be able to open up to share my story and to also know, which I think is really important that there are like, I I feel like it's for everybody, but because we are in a queer space and especially like an LDS queer space that, that we have those boundaries of, hey, you You don't have to say anything you don't want to. And that safety is there. And And it's okay not to share all of your story. I love that we start with queer joy. Like that, that, I think to me is so important because there is a lot of queer pain out there. And so to start with queer joy and then to have the safety net of, you know, share what you want. We can edit what you want and just go for it. So thank you, Kate and Colette, for creating that safety. Okay, queer in 60 seconds. Let's see if I can do this. <laughs> I I had a friend ask me the other day, they're like, did you always know that you were gay? And I think I always, I I can pinpoint like as a child when I knew, but I didn't have the words for it. I was in third grade when I wrote my first love letter to a girl. My first crush, I still remember her name. I remember where I was on the playground when I gave her the note with a piece of gum in it. I, I remember that. And then that was about the same time frame. And I have this paper somewhere and I need to go find it. But I wrote a letter to my aunt. And in that letter, it says something to the effect of, I don't want to be a boy, but I don't like being a girl. So I guess I will just be a tomboy and I'll climb trees. And this is a letter I wrote as a little nine-year-old to my aunt. And so I feel like this is something being non-binary I guess I should back up a bit. Hi, I'm Sam. My pronouns are they, them, and I'm non binary. <laughs> a little late to the game. But I feel like that kind of is the basis of it. But I didn't have the words at the time. I grew up in Utah, born and raised in Utah, Mormon. And there's some very specific gender roles that come with that. We have really strict gender roles, not just with society, but also within a religion. And so adding that to some abusive childhood environments. I got married super young. I followed that religious path that you're supposed to get married young, have kids and definitely don't be gay, (laughs) Like, not allowed. And then as I was a couple years into my marriage, I had actually written a letter to a friend about a week before I got married and I just hit it and never talked about it. But that was when I finally was able to first say, I think I'm gay. But I'm getting married in a week. There's nothing I can do. I'm Mormon. I can't do anything about this. Ended up getting married, having kids, doing that whole newly Mormon married thing, moving around, figuring out what you want to do in life. And about five years in, realizing that I, I'm going to use these quotey fingers, suffered from same-sex attraction (laughs) and started doing like all the things that you do. When you're in a hetero marriage and you are dealing with that, praying, fasting, doing more service, being more involved in serving in the church, having more kids, more temple attendance, whatever it took, to the point that it became unhealthy, where it was beating myself up mentally every single day and engaging in self harm behaviors because that self hate was so ingrained living in a religious culture. And I got to a point where I was at work one day. And I was, I'd been in therapy for a couple of years now to try to deal with the same sex attraction. And I could feel like a new crush starting for one of my coworkers. And that was happening for me. And I was sitting down and I was just having this inner talk with myself. And I was like, what would it actually look like to just love myself with this Affliction. Like, what if I stopped fighting myself? What would my life look like to just love myself this way instead of continually trying to change and continually having this be a a problem? And that was probably the catalyst that started a lot of things, a lot of change in my life. I ended up getting divorced later that year. And as I was going into the finalization of the divorce, I got a new therapist and I walked in and walking out of that first um, appointment, I turned back, I think it's called like a doorway confession or something. I turned back around and I looked at my therapist and I said, so I'm pretty sure I fall somewhere on the role of gender non-conforming. I don't know where, but I don't have time to look at that right now. So that's going to have to be shelved. And that was like three and a half years ago. So looking at it now, over the past three and a half years, especially with a lot of therapy, but coming to an understanding of what my gender identity is, and accepting that. And then also, even when I did come to that, I needed to figure out because I have the label of a parent, like that, to me, is something that's super important that I choose to show up as a parent every day in the lives of my kids. I have full custody. So I have my kids a lot of the time. And my goal, of course, as a parent is to make their lives better than mine was. I hope that's every parent's goal in life is that their kid's life is better than theirs was. And so I really wanted to make sure I was not going to Scar my kids by being like, well, I'm not your mom anymore. So that's that was a lot of just small family talks that we had to do and have to figure out what was going to work because they they were definitely younger at the time, and as they've grown, like we continue to have these conversations. I'm still mom, but as they're growing, they introduce me to their friends as their parent. At home, they'll always call me mom, and it's not something that bugs me because to them that is who I am. But it has been a real learning curve for our family to figure out what does it look like to have a non-binary parent, what does that mean as far as, especially as societal gender roles are concerned? Went through a big learning curve with that. And it wasn't, I think it was only recently, it was back in December, actually, that I came out publicly as Sam and with they, them pronouns. So that's, that was more than 60 seconds, but yeah, that's a really brief Cliff Notes version.
0: Oh, so much to dive into. And it really has been amazing since I've known you, Sam, for three years now and seeing this journey of you not really leaning into the non-binary identity and then finally coming out like your close friends knew you as Sam for the last several years, but to then be out publicly, you came out on new year's Eve. You said, going into the new year, I want people to know me and including the Dr. (laughs) Seuss, I am Sam (laughs) illustration.
2: Oh my goodness. Yeah. I, I think I did not realize what I was getting myself into when I said that, when I was like, this is going to be my year. I really didn't know what I meant when I said that because it's been a crazy year just coming to the realization. And I feel like a part of this actually has to do with redefining gender roles and what that kind of means to be a non-binary parent, wanting a different life for my kids and then going for that I think a lot of times especially in society and especially in the LDS culture that is like providing for a family is something that we leave to the men like that is their job and when you have even in families that are all in maybe it's a heteronormative marriage that is still if you have the wife who's working outside of the home and the husband who's a stay-at-home dad like even that is considered weird even if they're a healthy family unit. And to deconstruct that a little bit, I think I was waiting for my youngest to go into school full-time before I would take care of myself. And that was because that's what we're taught to do. If you're a mom, you sacrifice. You are the one who stays home. You're the one who gives up their dreams. You're the one who gives and gives and gives because that's what the gender roles are in the church. In January, I hit a point where I realized that I needed to provide better for my kids. And in order to do that, I had to change a lot of things. I had to be actively looking for a stable home environment for my kids. So we bought a house. I needed to actively be... Pursuing a higher education so that I could get a better job, so that I could provide for them. In the middle of summer semester with SUU right now online, and then we're moving to Cedar City in a couple weeks, and I'll continue there to get my college degree. So I'm really excited about that. But yeah, when I came out on New Year's Eve and was like, "2022 is my year," and I'm showing up as me, I didn't realize like how much work it would entail to show up as me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you've had to do a lot of really hard work. For sure. I would like to talk about this moment that you say you come out right before you get married. Is that the first moment that you say to yourself too, I'm
2: gay? I think that was the first time I had written that down. Yeah. So I had a lot of those little moments of like writing a love letter in third grade or writing that letter to my aunt. And Growing up, gay was not a word I had language for. I didn't know what that meant. It might be a parental thing or environment thing. First off, sex is never talked about. Attractions never talked about. You get to go to, if if you're AFAB, you go to your young woman's class and draw your pictures of your perfect boyfriend and who you're going to marry and list all their qualities on the back. I specifically remember one instance where it's like, they use little like cutouts that you like glued on so you could pick the hairstyle and the hair color and like create this little paper doll boyfriend. <laughs> and that's the extent a- along with, but don't have sex before you're married. And if you do anything to elicit those feelings inside of yourself, then you're evil. And holy crap, what feelings are we talking about? Please give me some language because you're saying don't elicit feelings. What feelings? <laughs> like, Tell me, walk me through what those feelings look like, because I don't know. And so having grown up in that environment, I think it really, there is an emotional growth stunt that happens. I feel like growing up LDS, growing up Mormon, there's so much that we don't learn about because a lot of the parenting, especially like the morals of life is left to Sunday school is left to young men and young women's teachers. And if you got that in your household, that's wonderful, and that's amazing, and that is not normal for a Mormon background. So I think for me in that instance, it had been a couple years. There was a lot that was going on in in my environment, in my family, and it was one of those you say yes to someone who asks you to marry them because that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to get get married. You're supposed to grow the kingdom of God. I'm sorry. Sometimes I get a little snarky and I got to make sure it's not coming across the wrong way. But yeah, I think I had a realization. I was probably about 15 or 16 and I remember I I had this best friend and of course I had a crush on her, but I, I didn't understand it. And at 16, here I am walking home from high school and all of a sudden I was like, oh shoot, this is a crush. We're talking about what crushes feel like. Like I'm listening to her talk about her crushes on boys and what they feel like. And I'm like, I feel this way for you. And that was really hard as a 16 year old to come to grips with because all of a sudden I recognized, like I could pinpoint all these things in my life that kind of came together. And I'm like, wait a second, I'm gay, which means I have same sex attraction, which means I'm going to hell. Like (laughs) all these things that lead up to, going to hell and being evil and having these evil tendencies. And at that point, along with some other reasons, but I didn't talk for a while. I I ran into this friend later, a couple years later, and they're like, oh, my goodness, you're talking because when they knew me, I was just very quiet. I was afraid of myself. I was afraid of my environment. There was a lot of things I was afraid of. And the only thing I could think to do was to close off, to not speak, to keep myself safe. And so, yeah, the week or two weeks before my wedding, I was feeling really fearful going into the wedding, and so I sat down and I wrote a note, and as I was writing, that kind of, that was the first time I'd written out, I like girls, like that, okay, besides the third grade letter, but (laughs) that was the first time I'd acknowledged to myself, like, I have an attraction towards women, and this is scary, and I'm getting married, and I don't know what to do about this, and I'm Mormon, so I can't actually be gay, so what does all this mean? And then it, I hid the letter. I actually, I hid it in like a picture frame of like Jesus and the little children. Cause I like wasn't sure what to do with it. Like, I was like, I didn't want anyone to find it. And so I was like, where is no one going to look? But because I couldn't get rid of it, like it was sitting there staring at me in the face. And then I just didn't speak about it for five years. Like that just became a part of me that just went into the closet and I never brought up.
1: Wow. I think that story is going to hit home for a lot of people. I think that people will recognize themselves in this story. I hear you speaking and see myself as a 16-year-old. I was walking with my friend and not thinking, I have a crush on you. I was thinking, I'm feeling feelings that I am I cannot – I. how do I shut off what – is making all of these feelings come up. And I didn't let myself get to the point where I was like, yeah, this is what a crush is. But everything that you're talking about, I think that lots of us experience and feel. So when you did get married, you never came out to your spouse after that. Did you show them that letter? We did talk about it about a year into our marriage. I'd
2: found the letter. We were redecorating a room and I found it and I kind of just showed it to him. We never really talked about it. I was in therapy on and off during those five years, but that about the five year mark is when I had another friend where I was like, oh, I'm developing, like I'm older now. So I have more words. I have more language. I understand what's happening. So now I got to go to therapy to get rid of this. (laughs) Like now I've got to get this out of me now that I can acknowledge it, that I'm suffering from same sex attraction. Now I've got to fix it. And at that point, that's when It was part of our discussions a little bit more. It was mostly just between me and my therapist at the time and that poor therapist. She was so great. I think a lot of times we hear about therapists, especially through LDS family services or something where there is a lot of conversion therapy out there that happens. There's a lot out there that is really damaging and detrimental. And so if you're LDS and you go to your bishop and you say, I'm suffering from same-sex attraction and they're like, great, let's get you to therapy, go to this therapist. There's a lot of harm. That usually comes from that therapy this therapist was the opposite <laughs> she was so done with my terminology it's not same-sex attraction you are gay <laughs> she was trying so hard to help me understand like it wasn't anything to be ashamed of and it wasn't something i was ready to hear at the time because having been so steeped in religion like i was not ready to hear that how I felt was okay. I wasn't ready to learn that I could trust myself and my feelings because we're taught not to trust our feelings. We're taught to shut off our feelings and to leave our experience to being judged by somebody else
1: who doesn't even know us personally. Wow. Wow. You're touching on so many crucial points that people are going to, people are going to tap into. Yes. Conversion therapy happens. There are many places that the bishops will send you to that are not going to be safe. So I'm so grateful that you found somewhere safe. How did you, was it just like a lot of sessions that helped you get there? Was it your therapist that really helped you get there? So she worked with me
2: a lot to deal with a lot of some childhood trauma. And because in my mind, at the time, childhood trauma equaled being gay. I feel like that's also an understory that we have in the Mormon culture is that that is what causes you to be gay.
0: And and can we refute that for a minute because if we look at statistics, how many more people would be gay if that was the case? <laughs> Ouch. But that's so true. That's so true. And that was something I'm going to jump ahead for a second
2: and I'll come back. That was something that when I finally got to the point where I could look at my gender identity, it wasn't okay. Now that we've dealt with my therapist at this, at this point in my life right now, presently, it wasn't ever a conversation of, okay, now that we've dealt with all the childhood trauma, now we're going to deal with gender identity. It was, we have been working on all this trauma. And as it's been resolving, do you still feel like trauma is what caused you to be queer. Because I think you already know, like you already have the knowledge that you already knew when you were little, that you didn't want to be a boy, you didn't want to be a girl, and you're stuck in this body that doesn't work for you. And it had nothing to do with the trauma. So jumping back to the therapist I had at the time, she, because of course, I'm still in this paradigm of I've got to be religious. Like I've got to go to the celestial kingdom. I've got to get this out of me. Like I will just suffer with this for the rest of my life if I have to, if it will get me to the celestial kingdom. And so we've been working through some childhood trauma and we always kept coming back around to being gay or queer. And she, at the last session I went to with her and I left because in my mind, I was doing my own conversion therapy and Even though I was with a therapist who was not adding to it at all, because of the religious trauma and the religious culture, I myself was creating my own conversion therapy in my head. And so she said she was really frustrated with how I was arguing with her, which I mean, granted, she she was right. But I kept coming back with, what about the celestial kingdom? What about being a mom and a wife? What about I, I have to conform? And she threw her hands up and she was like, if you would just leave your husband for one night and go to a gay bar, you would realize you were gay. <laughs> and and I, of course, went home and I'm like, I can never go back. She's telling me to leave my husband. She's telling me to leave my religion. She's a horrible therapist. I can never go. Back. I'm shout out to my old therapist. You were right. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm so sorry. It took me so long to get there. But that's kind of where I was at that point was I was so determined to to be perfect because i think that's kind of an underlying role in all of it that perfectionism and it doesn't just hurt the queer community it hurts everybody but especially when your very identity is tied up in not being perfect i think that's some damage that happens
1: definitely i would like to unravel some of the things that you're talking about here because i think that there might be people who think, "Wow, your therapist really pressured you to come out." It seems like <laughs> no, um, she
2: she was good.
1: Yeah, it's to me, it's remarkable that you could find somebody who was able to do that in Utah, especially, and and you feel safe with that person too, because I think it's hard when you're growing up a Latter Day Saint to. Be vulnerable, especially in therapy and stuff like that. But I think what's really crucial and important about what you're saying is that you were telling your therapist what you felt and how you were, and your therapist was just regurgitating those things. Like that means this, and then you were she was saying, "Giving
2: me language."
1: Yes, and you were saying, but. I have these expectations that I have to uphold because there is a structure around me that tells me if I don't, I'm not going to be with my family, I'm not going to heaven, all of those sorts of things. And I think it's important to unpack that because we have to recognize that this pressure is the thing that needs to be alleviated, not the, the she was giving you the language needed to be there and it it just wasn't there. I liked what you had said earlier about you, you were talking about something along the lines of what does this mean? We, we aren't given the language within Mormonism to talk about certain, especially sexual type conversations. And I was, I know exactly what you're talking about. If you go to the strength of youth pamphlet that we grew up with, it, it gives you these, really vague things to talk about. Don't arouse feelings within yourself. That's what it says. Something along those lines, and you had brought that up. If you don't have the language to talk about that, you're not going to know what that means. And a therapist has the chance to give you that language and understand what it is we're talking about and how you can feel about it. Not how you should feel about it, but how you can feel about it.
2: Yeah, and that's been a huge learning curve for me to not judge how I feel. Because I think that's probably in that sense of talking about the Strength of the Youth pamphlet, because that's what it is. This is a template for how you judge how you feel. If you feel one way, here's how we're going to judge you. This is how you should judge yourself. And it's almost like it becomes a real part of our DNA. It becomes part of our mental and emotional DNA to judge ourselves based off of our feelings that we might not even have words for. And I I think that's something that's so critical, even for someone who's heteronormative, that it is, that, that that is still there. That's not just an LDS queer experience. That's something that everyone who grows up Mormon experiences, is that judging how you feel without even being given the language of what you're feeling. I think it's one of the reasons why my parenting with my kids, I heard a phrase the other day, I think it was probably Brene Brown who said, this is the normalizing generation. We're going to normalize the heck out of everything. And for me, it's, it's the idea of removing shame. Give the language so that language is there. The language has to be there because if you don't know what you're talking about, then there's so much confusion and it creates unclear communication. Cause that can happen. Clear communication can happen even in writing. So if you have the strength of the youth pamphlet, you have unclear communication that's happening right there. And I love I'm so grateful for that therapist for giving me the words and for being very clear in what she was saying. Like it wasn't a I'm gonna beat around the bush and say, maybe have you thought about what do you think it was? What you are describing is this here's a label here's a word here's a phrase of what you're describing to me and here's what it's here's what people <laughs> normal people would call that and i say normal people because <laughs> i i feel like when we're not given language when we're not given when we're almost in a way secluded from the world then we lose out on being able to connect with other people everyone becomes others and we lose out on so many important
1: connections. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. Why do you think it was important for your therapist to describe this as gay rather than something else, especially same-sex attraction? Oh,
2: <laughs> oh, okay. Like, I'm worried that what I'm going to say over the next little bit might be controversial. So, there's your warning. But I feel like same-sex attraction is almost a damaging phrase and I recognize that can come across as harsh because that's something that a lot of people feel safe to attach to especially when you're first coming out when you're first coming to grips with I'm in Relief Society and I'm sitting behind someone and oh my gosh like I am attracted to them but not even being able to say that to yourself like the idea of same-sex attraction feels a lot safer than saying gay or lesbian. My my kids would be like, but mom, technically you are a lesbian. That was my kids' first reaction when I first came, my oldest again, when I first came out to them, ooh, and it it's been like three years. And her response was, Mom, technically. <laughs> but I mean I use queer for myself a lot because I think queer embodies that gender nonconformingness for me. But in the in the sense of queer Mormon women and or AFABs coming to that understanding for themselves. Same sex attraction is a phrase that the church uses and using that it's almost, it takes away from someone's humanness. It takes away from someone's individuality because you're saying this isn't actually who you are. It labels it right in there with it's a trial. and Along that same lines, if it's a trial or uh, something you suffer with and you have to deal with, in that sense, it makes it easier to say, This is evil. This is wrong. So if we're using the term same sex attraction that you suffer with, I suffer with, I deal with, same sex attraction, it's inadvertently saying, I deal with something that is evil, and makes me less than perfect, and takes away from my worth, from my inherent worth. Whereas I feel like being able to come to a place and say, you know what, I accept myself wholly as I am. Who I am is enough as it is. And it has nothing to do with it being a trial. Who I am is not a burden to me. And it's not a burden to those around me. And I feel like there's a very freeing sense in being able to get to that place of no longer seeing it as a problem.
1: And that's what your therapist expressed too?
2: Oh, those are just my thoughts. <laughs> I think my therapist was was having to work with me when I was in the mindset of trying to do conversion therapy on myself. And so she was wow. having to be very blunt because I I do think for as much as other people provide outside conversion therapy when we grow up in a certain culture and a certain expectation. It, it is set up in such a way. It's, it is again, controversial. It is a cult like mentality that then teaches you to do it to yourself. At some point, there is not a person in charge that has to continue to feed you these lies because you will do it yourself.
1: What you're describing is actually something that happens in major stifling ideologies. And one of those ideologies I study is that of the Soviet Union and trying to make yourself more Marxist. And what you're describing happens in the Soviet Union too. People journal writing and saying, I need to have control over myself. And they call it willpower, which in the church we use this too. You need to have more willpower. The idea that you're enacting this ideology, you're very entrenched in the ideology and you need to enact it for yourself. I see a lot of similarities between these things.
2: Yeah, I I think that's probably why I don't like the term same-sex attraction the most is that it is teaching you to continue to demean yourself.
1: Can I pause here and ask Colette, did you identify with same-sex attraction? I never identified with same-sex attraction, so it wasn't a thing for me.
0: No, I don't think I did because it was so quick in me going, I'm straight, I'm straight, I'm straight. Yeah, I'm straight, but I'm in love with this woman, but I'm still straight. I'm straight, I'm straight, I'm straight to maybe I'm bi. And then that lasted a week. And then I was like, no, I'm gay. (laughs) So I never, but that doesn't eliminate, I I really want to talk more about this self-conversion therapy. We've talked to other people about conversion therapy and things they've gone to, but I don't think we've talked much about the self-conversion therapy and what that's like. And so I'd love to maybe have you talk a little little more, Sam, about what that was like in your mind, if that's okay.
2: Yeah. And I'm realizing that it can sound like it probably sounds a little out there because we do so attach to the idea of conversion therapy being what other people tell us, what other go home and read the miracle of forgiveness or deny yourself how you're feeling. And we go off down that road. But the idea for me of like self conversion therapy is just being steeped in self hatred and not being able to accept myself, not being perfect enough. Whatever it was that I wasn't enough, then I needed to do better. I needed to fix myself. I needed to heal myself. I needed, I was responsible for taking care of me because I was the problem. And I think that's the baseline for creating an environment in our minds of self-conversion therapy because one thing my present therapist and I have been working on a lot lately is this idea that everything is a choice and i think i really fought that at first like i remember the first time she told me like you have a choice here in this and i was like no i do not it was it wasn't even related to being queer but this idea of choice especially especially i think for me at least in the sense of being a victim of childhood abuse the idea that I had any choice in the matter just felt almost invalidating of what had happened. And it took a while to be able to understand inside of me that my thoughts and where I allow my thoughts to go are my choice. And even when I'm triggered, it is my choice of how to respond. And that doesn't mean that how I choose to respond is right or wrong. I can choose to say, okay, I'm triggered. I need some space from people. I can choose to say I'm triggered and I need to go throw rocks because I'm angry. Or I can be like, wow, I was really triggered in that moment and I chose to yell. That's my choice. It's still my choice. And coming to an acceptance of My responses and my reactions, both of those being my choice, was something that took some time. And so it's something I'm still sitting with this idea of self-conversion therapy, but because that's what it was. I was not taken away to some camp in the middle of the Utah desert and deprived. I did that to myself. I deprived myself of my feelings. I deprived myself of... Happiness and joy because I didn't believe I deserved it.
0: And you said it might seem out there, but I think for those of us that are queer, that's not out there at all. Like, I completely relate. I did have some mild conversion therapy from a therapist when I was still not even identifying as gay. And I think I've talked about that before. I'm like, how different would it have been if I had had a therapist like yours being like, have you considered what this might mean? The self conversion therapy is so real. You were saying earlier the idea of. These things are bad, and me internalizing it as that means I'm a bad person and bringing on that shame. I, I just really appreciate you sharing your experiences with it because I think it's something so many of us can relate to, but it isn't talked about
1: much. I think also you talked earlier about this self sacrifice being a mother. Once you enter into a marriage and once you become a parent, you universally, you all, everyone there within Mormonism, there is this culture of you are supposed to sacrifice everything, including yourself, who you are for your children. So there's this added layer that I think that it sounds to me like same sex attraction was a way for you to talk about that heavy responsibility, I imagine, you felt as a mother, as a parent, and as a spouse as well.
2: Yeah, and I kind of I want to take go with that for half a second, because I do think the way that we have gender roles in society, and then the way that those are really hammered home within church culture, how that plays into, I think, especially the experience of Mormon uh, assigned female at birth, people, whether it's non-binary or trans or lesbian, that, because of that in particular, the gender roles, I think that really affects a lot of the inner need for perfection and for self-sacrificing that adds to just that that mindset of self-sabotage, really, of self-hatred. It's always a journey. It's never a, woohoo, we've reached an end point. I understand everything. <laughs> I I think it was just this past Mother's Day where I was really sitting with a lot of how I feel uh, about being a parent and how that used to look and how it looks now. Because even after going through the divorce, it took some time to deconstruct from what I expected gender roles to be the ways I expected my ex to show up in my kids' lives, the way I expected co-parenting should go, the way I expected myself to show up and still manage. And this is the big thing I had to learn. I was still trying to manage my kids' relationship with their dad. And I feel like that is something that a lot of moms and wives do is they manage a lot of the emotional labor that happens in the house but that also includes the relationships that people within the house have with each other and that includes the relationships kids have with their father and that is oof that was a hard one to let go of that was a hard one to let go of to stop managing that that was probably my first step so if anyone's looking for a step by step guide <laughs> let let go of managing my kids relationship with their dad and how he showed up. Like I I had to let go of my expectations on that. And then I had to reevaluate my expectations of myself. And especially when it comes to burning out because I think that's something that a lot of moms find themselves in a situation with is a lot of burnout. The moms are in charge of getting everyone up and ready for church in the morning, going to church, having family home evening, having family prayer, along with all the other labors of the household. And so having been divorced, I think really changed that for me because all the expectations I had of what gender roles looked like. All of that then became my responsibility. It was no longer a, this is the husband's responsibility to go to work and do this and this and put food on the table. And it's the mom's responsibility and gender role to stay at home and take care of the kids and make sure they get to all their appointments on time and kiss the boo-boos and go to school and be involved in the PTA. All of a sudden it was all me. And I was doing all of the stuff I had done before, but now I was working. And I was working with children and then the pandemic hit. And that was probably the biggest thing was I was blessed enough to have a boss that would let me bring my kids to work with me during the first initial like shutdowns when school first shut down. But it was it definitely challenged my experience myself challenged in my own mind what gender roles were. And I had to sit with that. And so I think this past Mother's Day, as I was just contemplating in the past, what Mother's Day looks like. It's like a a break. It's the one day, right? It's the one day of the year that moms get a break, that they get breakfast in bed. And it's like, thanks, mom, but now you got to go clean up the kitchen because we just made a mess of it. And the mom's the initial idea of I need a break. As a mom, I need a break. And this is definitely not to discount at all because as a single parent, like I get that, like I need breaks. There are days where I'm like, I just, I got to go in and take a breath in the bathroom by myself with doors locked and just breathe for a second before I go out and put on, not put on a mask, but have the ability to go make dinner and to go engage in listening to all the drama about sixth grade or third grade and just being able to be present for that. But to have gone from, and I don't know that I can pinpoint when this happened. I think it has just been a gradual shift of, oh my gosh, it's Mother's Day. I just want a break. I'm so tired of being a mom. I just want my co-parent to step in and parent, or even from when we were first married to now being, it's almost a mindset of, I choose to show up as a parent to my children every day. And it is a choice and I can choose not to. And it will be a really sucky day for them if I choose not to. I can choose to disengage, but it is a choice. And it's not because I'm the mom or because I have these gender roles. It's because I'm the adult and I'm the parent and they are so precious to me. And there are things they can't do for themselves. And because I choose to be their parent, then it is my responsibility to do that for them. And so this past Mother's Day was probably oh, it was so relaxing. It was so nice just to be able to be with them and spend time with them. And what the nice part was, I think, was because I wanted to. It wasn't a I wanted a break from my kids feeling. It was the it's not about. Yay, let's celebrate moms. It's about mom is the label you use for me because you love me, and I love you, and we are in a gendered society, so yay Mother's Day, but you are my children, and I choose to be in your life, and I want to spend this day with you.
0: I seriously love that so much. One of the things I love, knowing you and your children, it's amazing to just see how consciously you parent them, and I know I've said this to you individually, I'm going to say it on the podcast. It's very healing for me to see you with your girls and how you show up for them and you're there for them. You made a comment earlier about a lot of parents default to letting the church parent their children as far as morals and lessons and things like that. And I've seen that so often working with so many Mormons and you don't do that. I was there the other day when your nine-year-old had a sex question. And I was like, wait, you you talk about sex? Not that surprising because I've known you for so long, but just how normal it was and how you do just consciously show up and how you wanted to spend Mother's Day with them. And you just had a really nice day at the park. And it's just, it's really beautiful to see how you do choose to continue to show up and provide for them. I know we sometimes say provide, that's the husband's role, but you provide, provide, protect what other the other p is for from the founding proclamation and you nurture you bring everything for them
2: thank you i appreciate that i it's definitely something and it's again it's a journey to make sure that i am not basing my worth off of just being their parent but it is something that i hold really special to me that i am their parent and that i get to do this these are little tiny humans that i am responsible for <laughs> And, and they are, they are really amazing kids. Yeah. The whole, the sex conversation. Oh, we have a lot of those we have. And that kind of goes back to giving a language. I definitely, that is my goal is to give my kids language so that whatever they need to talk about, they at least have the language for, and it can be for an emotional conversation that's happening with them and their friends. It can be about sex. It can be about their bodies, And there are times where I'm like, holy cow, this is a really deep conversation. And I don't know that I have the capacity for it because they're asking such good questions because they have the language and they're not afraid to ask because they know how to. And I think that's part of having the language is if you know how to ask, you don't have to be afraid to ask.
1: Yeah, isn't that interesting that within Mormonism, we have so much language that is just Mormons. Like I wrote a post the other day that was about the divinely inspired constitution. And somebody said, that's like the most Mormon thing, you know, you could ever say. I was like, yeah, they said, actually, you're Mormon showing. And I was like, yes, yeah, accurate. So we have our own language to talk about Mormonism. And we get that language from our leaders. And it's so interesting that around really important topics like sex or like gender and lots of stuff that are that's really important that you can find in the strength of youth, that it's so vague that the leaders then go, okay, this isn't our area, but we're going to hand you this manual and run with it. You go with it, how whatever direction you want to go. When everything else is so... In Mormonism is given all of this other language that when something is presented to us so vague, vaguely that we just go, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> I would like to talk about how you get a divorce. You're becoming this dual parent. You're given these dual roles, and also discovering your gender and the language around your gender and those things happening simultaneously. But I think that people who don't talk about gender as often as maybe Colette and I do, or Sam and I do, that they might think that non-binary and those collapsing gender roles are like one and the same thing. But those are two separate things that are happening for you just simultaneously. Can you talk about that?
2: Yes. Oh, and that's, again, it, it does go into the this is all still a journey. Because where I'm at now, I feel like to be dealing with gender roles, I think that is definitely something that is a big discussion right now. Within like the LDS feminism community, like gender roles is something that's huge. And it's almost like, it's like a pendulum. Like we've been over here in the patriarchy for so long and there's so much we're missing out on, but it's almost like that we just swing over to the other side when we're talking about like the matriarchy. There's gotta be a middle. Actually, okay, like jumping ship for half a second and getting vulnerable here. So I did a thing last year where I sent in a bunch of poems to a publisher and I just heard back from them that they didn't accept them so I can read them (laughs) because they're not under contract. (laughs) But I wrote a poem about that because there is, there's not a middle. I actually wrote two poems. I'm trying to decide which one to read. I'm going to go, I'm going to start with this one. I call this one self-hatred and this kind of ties back into the idea of inner conversion therapy, that self-conversion therapy. So if my hate is strong enough to destroy my body, then maybe my hate is strong enough to destroy a binary system, a system that said in utero I was male and at birth I was female and in my soul, in my soul I am neither. A system that tries to take me and fit me into a box that my body cannot fathom, but still tried to make exceptions for, tried to conform, tried to follow. A system, a system that holds no space for me. If my hate can destroy my body, then maybe, turned outward, it can destroy, demolish, dismantle impossible norms. Maybe, as I reject the hate that has infused my body with compassion as it deteriorates, maybe it isn't too late. Maybe the space I give myself, I also give the world to grow in truths, to question, to be whole, all parts of me, all parts of the world, the pain and the relief and the in-between somewhere there is the space for me. Somewhere in the mess is calm within.
1: Yeah, we have to pause before the second one because I'm not going to be able to handle the second one. (laughs) One moment, please. Yeah, that I think
2: is a really good, for me at least, it's an insight into me of where, how it feels to be not gender conforming in a binary world. As we're talking about gender roles, that right there is the gender role is here or here, but I'm here. And first off, I need y'all to catch up. But secondly, like, that'd be nice. Tell the world, let's catch up there. And I think we're getting there if we're going back to talking about the patriarchy and the matriarchy. Like, we're here and we've swung here. Like, this is, we're we're on the upswing to the matriarchy, especially, like, within an LDS sense of I want to use the word, and I might be using it out of context, like almost a liberation. we're liberating ourselves from the patriarchy, but in the process, we're ending up, up. i'm I'm using body language that I recognize is not coming across in the podcast. I have my hands up demonstrating a pendulum, and so my left hand's up high, and it's like the patriarchy, and you're imagining like a ball swinging between the two of them because on the other side is matriarchy, and that's kind of in my head that's what gender looks like as far as if we're talking about a space of healthiness
1: even sam you're speaking my language you're making me pretty emotional i got very immediately got goosebumps because honestly I was looking for a lot of queer joy this week because there was a lot of queer pain because I felt like as a gender nonconforming person, it is so hard to constantly have to communicate your gender to other people. And then to hear somebody explain my gender back to me in such a beautiful way, when I felt like I've been yelling and screaming at a wall, <laughs> um, And that's what that poem is too, right? Like, I'm screaming at this wall, and eventually that wall's going to fall. Eventually, we're going to be able to break through. But for right now, it feels like so much work and so heavy. So thank you for that, because that's how I feel.
2: Yeah, you're welcome. It's a hard place to be. It's something that I struggle with too, because... For a trans community, gender is such a vital role. And to be non-binary for me, my experience is that even within the queer community, I get misgendered because I am, I'm not trans. I want to be a boy, but I am not lesbian because I'm not female. And so there is this weird, awkward space to sit with. And to sit in and to live in and at the same time to hold space for people where gender is so important to them and that holding that space open of acknowledging and respecting and validating healthy gender roles and healthy gender identity while at the same time sitting there going but the way that the system is set up is a binary and it is to create oppression.
1: Very well said. I think that I've recovered enough to hear a second poem.
0: Okay. I do have one question though, before we jump into the poem and I don't know if you want to elaborate on this, yeah. but in utero, I was a boy. Oh
2: yeah. So funny story.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it it is kind of a
2: funny story. Ultrasounds were not what they are now. And the ultrasound from when I was in utero was read as me being a boy. And so my name that was picked out for me was Matthew. And so it's something that has also been like just part of accepting myself and my identity and just has added to kind of my own path of figuring out who I am. But yeah, that, that story is definitely, <laughs> maybe one day I'll write a book about it. <laughs> but,
0: you have so many books to write already. I, I do, I do. I just thought that was an interesting thing. That's not everybody's non-binary experience, but I thought that's an interesting part of yours.
2: Yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's almost like it would be a non-issue, except that as we look at a binary world, it's not. Because from utero, we are gendering. We are, is it a boy, is it a girl? We're having gender reveal parties. We're gendering from before birth in this society and in this culture. And we're imposing these gender roles already. And so to be in a place where I'm questioning gender roles, it just almost gives me a sense of freedom to be able to question that for myself. I could have been a boy. What does that look like? Is that how? And it was also helpful for me to be able to ask myself that question. Did I want to be a boy? If I could have been, would I have chosen? And to be able to be like, no, I I don't actually, I, no, thank you, gender. I don't choose you. <laughs> That's my experience. This does not spark joy. It can go out. <laughs> But that's me, but I'm living in a binary world. And so how do you toss out gender when you're stuck in the system?
1: Yeah, and I think it's important to recognize for people, again, who might not be used to these conversations, that how damaging it is to be doing these gender reveal parties and be talking about gender before somebody's even birthed And that this completely erases intersex people and their experiences. And that is truly damaging. So just want to slip that one in there, too.
2: Yeah, for sure. I've actually I've noticed recently, like when people are asking, oh, so you have three girls that I'm sitting here going, well, for now, like for now, I do like I, I how do I say but I'm giving space for them to be who they are. Like that could change in five years. I one of them might come out and be like, Yeah, you know what? So I'm trans or I'm non-binary or whatever other language is available by them that they identify with. Even this past week there was so many conversations. I overheard a conversation actually between a couple of people. And thankfully, it was my sister and one other person. And my sister's so great. She totally has got my back. And they were like, oh, so you've got this many boys and this many girls in your family, talking about us as a sibling group. And my sister, the term that we use, and this was actually coined by a friend of hers when she was talking to him about me. And then we have another sibling that is gender non-conforming. And so this person was asking my sister, Oh, so there's how many boys, how many girls in the family? And it was interesting how that question is not something I could have answered. I did not feel comfortable answering it because it's a question where I have to pull back and be like all the questions, right? Am I safe enough in this space to come out? Is this a safe person? Do I feel comfortable sharing my story? Because this is going to be a long story or do I just give up and be like, we're in a system. I'm just going to answer your, I'm going to answer your question in this, in the system that you're asking it. And my, my sister was so great. She goes, actually, I have three brothers and two themsters. And that was that's the phrase that we use that my sister uses for me. I'm their themster. And so then it created this huge, long conversation that I didn't have to be a part of. I was really appreciative of my sister just running with that because it made it easier for the person to be receptive because it didn't feel like I was defensive talking about it or that I was afraid of them and that they didn't worry about if I say something wrong, I'm going to hurt this person's feelings. So I was on the outside listening. And then my sister, of course, came to me afterwards like, was that okay?" And I was like, that was beautiful. That was great because it's one way where we can have these conversations of, hey, gender is more than just boy or girl. And I I really appreciated that. But yeah, we do have just how, I think sometimes even I don't realize how damaging it is until it happens. Like, I don't realize myself how damaging it is until someone misgenders me over and over again. And all of a sudden, I'm like, whoa, I'm really feeling that. I'm not even sure what the feeling is yet. I don't know that I can name it, but I'm feeling squashed. I'm feeling made invisible. I'm feeling
0: put back into this box. Thank you for articulating that. I think that'll be really helpful for individuals that haven't been in that situation. And I also really appreciate you giving us more language. I think I just saw some queer joy on Kate's face when you said Themster. And I think they're going to start using that one. So thank you. (laughs) Yep, big fan. It was so great. I think it it definitely gave
2: me some freedom when the, when that phrase was used. I was like, "Oh, that makes sense because I don't have to be a sister or a brother. I'm a themster." Yeah, it, it's like almost like gangsterish. Like I'm cool now. I need a hat. I need some patches on a jacket or something.
0: You're so queer. You already have
2: those things, Sam. Okay. Yes, I do. <laughs> I'm going to jump into this next poem, and this kind of talks more about, like, the spirituality and the gender roles within religion. So I call it Envy Spirituality. As an envy, a non-binary person, one who does not and cannot conform to either side of the gender debate, having massive dysphoria but no bodily envy, having to heal much in regards to the masculine patriarchal religion trauma and try to find solace in spiritual feminine. Sometimes I find myself at a loss, a standstill, where my soul aches for a higher power, but my very DNA requires one or the other. The patriarchy is a male child, hand fed, gifted, coddled until the one day, with absolute repulsion for the one who has been feeding him, he bites the soft, gentle hand that every day makes him a sandwich, and suddenly he has arrived. Meanwhile, femininity is a girl child, shamed and beaten into submission with rules and expectation only to serve the male gaze, only to be used for others, holding all emotional labor and yet still with a clean face and dinner on the table, slapped for having opinions. While we search for feminism without masculine traits, we find a more merciful side of power, more whole, but it is not enough for me. I want a spiritual home, a home beyond the confines of gender.
0: That's so beautiful. I am so grateful you're willing to share your words with us, Sam. You are such a beautiful writer. I'm always so happy when you share different things on social media or just through text or messages to me. That's so beautiful. And it's hard when religion is so binary and gendered. And where do you fit? I think that is a constant question for anyone who is gender nonconforming. Where do you fit? And having to make your own place, that's a
1: really hard road. Yeah, also, I have a lot of language. I've studied gender theory now. I have a lot of language to talk about what (laughs) this feels like and what it means. And yet, your words, the way you can describe it, I haven't had that experience. I haven't had that experience of being able to hear that from a place that does touch like a my soul or my spirituality to know my soul is connecting with your soul. We understand one another on a deeper level here than than even just talking through gender theory can can get at these poems. I think many people will be able to tap into it and be like, I get it now. Oh, I see it now. So thank you for sharing.
2: Yeah, thank you for giving me the space to do that. For me, I I feel it more than I can describe it like it is something that's felt because there is for me I'm I, I obviously and this is something I maybe should have gone in the 60 seconds <laughs> not in the church anymore I'm not participating and actually is for reasons that had nothing to do with being queer and there were some other things that had happened and there's just, having grown up in such a structured religion, when I left, I had to put it all down, everything. I had to put religion and spirituality down. And now as I'm trying to take it back up and look at it and kind of mold what it looks like for me, because I feel like we we all have a spiritual need. There is There is a need to connect physically and emotionally, but also spiritually, and when that connection is gendered it can be really hard it can be tough to find and i th- i don't think that it's a experience that's only found like in the mormon church i think that's everywhere because spirituality or religion has become part of the system that's binary and adds to it that we are left with a space of what does spirituality look like without a higher feminine power or a higher masculine power what about just a higher power something that connects all of us. And what does that look like if it's not gendered?
1: Yeah. And I, I was in a conversation this week where somebody was trying to, was asking a lot of questions to try to get in touch with what it was that, what my experience is like. And it's hard to describe it. And yet it's interesting that Latter-day Saints have this experience All of the time, there is getting in touch with something and knowing something or being in touch with some sort of spiritual power in touch with the spirit that you cannot describe that you just have to say, you'll know it when you feel it, you understand like these unknowing things like that's gender happens in that space too. I wish that more Latter-day Saints could embrace that this is a spiritual journey, much like not being able to describe Mormonism to somebody. Why do you believe this? I just, I know it and I feel it in my being. That is my gender as well. I love how
0: you brought that up
2: because I do think that is... That's it's bringing me back a little bit to when I first started accepting my gender (laughs) non-ness to just know that was something that my therapist would keep coming back around to was you just know. You don't have to have a reason why. Trauma is not a reason why. Trauma is also not a reason why not. Trauma and gender are totally separate. And you've always known it's something that you've held on to through a lot of life changes knowing that you didn't fit into this box and you don't have to question it you can just believe yourself and that was really powerful to understand that i don't have to be able to describe in any type of logical or scientific way to somebody my gender experience it doesn't have to make sense to anyone but me
0: i love that maybe this is changing too much, we can not go down this road. But if you're willing to share, you chose your name, as you embrace your non-binary-ness more. You want to tell that story and kind of some of the gender euphoria you maybe felt as you leaned more into, oh, this is my name. And this is what it means to me to be non-binary. Yeah,
2: that that is a story. I feel like that could be like, (laughs) a whole nother hour. So I'll try to keep it like, not so long. But I, I think as I was coming to understand, asking myself the questions of gender and the whole like in utero, I was male thing, I think asking myself, what does this mean? What does my name mean? Do I connect with my name? And how do I feel about myself? It has been really healing to have picked a new name and to have people calling me by my name as I've been like doing the school stuff, all the, whenever you got to do legal papers, if you don't change your name legally, like it's always legal. And so that's actually, I've noticed that struggle has been coming up lately as I've had to do financial papers or stuff for buying a house or going to school. There are times where I have to use my legal name and just how it feels to like be on the phone with someone and they're calling and I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess that's who you're talking to. OK, but how I think for me, it just shows how much having my name has helped me. So it's uh, it was I'm not going to try to timeline it because I'll end up thinking too much about it. But it was a couple years ago and I was on a camping trip with a bunch of friends and we were playing volleyball. And it, the question of my name had been something I'd been sitting with for a while. Like I was definitely in a place at that point where I'm like, I am not okay. I know that gender is not my thing. This name I have is very gendered and I need something different, but that's going to require a lot of change. I don't know if I'm there yet. Plus I have, again, I'm a parent. I've got three kids that I need to make sure this process is easy for them as well. Not easy for them in the sense of, I don't want them to experience conflict, but easy in the sense of that my emotional stress doesn't reflect on them and I'm able to hold their questions and their space as they grow. So they're not having to help me or fix me, but I'm able to be there for them in a way that doesn't trigger me and is safe for everybody. There was just a lot going on mentally and emotionally surrounding that. So we're out in the volleyball field. And there was, I I didn't know a lot of the people there, but there was a new person coming over. So introductions were going around. But of course, they're coming from across the field. And what had happened was just a miscommunication. They had asked who's the boy sitting over there in the corner. And so one of my friends had yelled back, it's a girl. And they heard it's Carl. And so it was, oh, hi, Carl. (laughs) And so of course, they got closer. And it's like, no, 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 it's not Carl. But it was in that moment where I was like, oh, they couldn't tell my Gender from that far away. Okay, obviously, because the default, if you're not a girl, is a boy. Yes, that's still not something I want. But hey, this is progress. <laughs> like, I'm slowly being ungendered. So later that day, we were all swimming and they came up to apologize because they're like, I'm so sorry I called you Carl. But in the moment, they said, Oh, Sam, I'm so sorry that I called you Carl. And that was, again, Sam wasn't my name at the time. And everyone's laughing again. But I was sitting there in that moment going, it was, it was like one of those if we're if we're gonna be Mormon, the heavens parted and the angels' light shone down, oh type of moments where it was like I felt that was inside of me. Something woke up having someone call me Sam. And so from that point I was like, I knew that was gonna be my name but it was again just a lot of fear there was a lot of still some inner work that I needed to work through to get to that point I told a few friends about it I started talking about it with my kids because I just the conversations we have they're very short kind of like going back to the whole the sex conversation I think it was like two or three questions it was one answer and we were done with that conversation but all the little conversations add up to make it comfortable. And so that was the, the situation I wanted to create with my kids is have all these little conversations to add up. So they knew that I wanted to be called Sam and that we were still gonna figure it out when that would happen. And we were at a beach with a bunch of friends and according to all the witnesses, I had my back turned. Person trying to get my attention was about six feet behind me and they were yelling my name over and over again. Didn't hear anything. I did not hear it at all. And so on a whim, they yelled, Sam. And it was like, again, something inside of me was like, yes, you called. And I like turned. And it was like my body just responded immediately. And I was like, I guess I know my name. <laughs> like it was... And my kid was sitting there. My oldest was there at the time. And, and she's like, yeah, that's the name that my mom wants to be called. <laughs> and it was, again, it was just a slow process opening up to friends, being like, hey, this is the name I'm going to go by. And then for Christmas, I think that year the next, there was just a family text thread that was going on between my siblings and my mom and me and and it's kinda like, hey, everyone, send the lists of what you want for Christmas. And I decided in that moment that I was gonna be like, I'm gonna be vulnerable because I hadn't really talked to my family about it. The conversations that we'd had was definitely about me being non binary, but not about like a different name. And it felt really scary to kind of approach my family of you've known me your whole life and my whole life this way. So I just sent out a text that was like, hey, for Christmas, like, here's a list for our family, but I would really like it if you would just call me Sam. If you could call me Sam for Christmas, that'd be great. And they were wonderful about that. They really were. And for, I think maybe for the listeners that aren't queer or non-binary, that are allies or family members that are listening, having not been in that space, I don't know what that feels like. Like, I know what it feels like for me being on this end, being like, this is something really vulnerable I'm sharing with you. And I think for the family, I think it's hard. I think it's, this is change and I'm not sure how to handle this. And I don't know what to do. My family was great and there's never going to be perfection. I think we, we have to let go of that in all sense. And so I don't expect perfection at all. And there's always, oh shoot, I'm so sorry. I I said you were my daughter. I should have said my child type of text that I get every now and then, but they try. And that's the biggest thing if I, like, if you're family and you're listening and you've got trans family members and non-binary family members, people have come to you and said, hey, my pronouns are this and my name is this. That's the biggest thing you can do is try. Don't not try just because you're afraid you're going to mess up. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. Don't be afraid to mess up because the trying is like the biggest thing you can do. It's one of the biggest shows of love you can do. And even to just come back around and be like, my sister, I mean my themster or she, I mean they like just a quick catching yourself and moving on. Like we notice that that is actually huge. Like we, we see it and we might be like, Oh no worries. Thanks so much. What we really mean is I want to throw you a party and like maybe kiss you and hug you because that meant so much that you would recognize me. So yeah, that was like the coming out to my family. And then it was again, slowly just talking to people at the time I came out to my kids, teachers and principal there were just some situations that were happening in the school. And I was like, okay, the kids need me to be out for them in their school to help them and just make everything the same all the way across. It needs to be this. And then I, I think my biggest reason, I didn't want them to have to deal with any backlash. And so I wasn't out publicly. And then at one point I ended up I can't even remember the whole conversation around it, but I ended up coming out to my ex. I think it was probably at a soccer game or something like that, where maybe it was over text, where I just came out to him. And at that point, I was kind of like, okay, my kids, their whole world is I am the same across all places of their world. Like They're safe. And so now I get to be in a place where I can choose to come out publicly. It happened inadvertently, I think, on Facebook. On one post, someone had who had knew me as Sam commented on my Facebook post. They're like, wait, you're going by this name or this name? And so that was, I was like, oh, we're getting close. Yeah, I should probably say something. And I, yeah, I think it just had to do with going into the new year and being done. Being at a place where I'm like, I have worked through my journey with gender and with my gender identity to the point that I am ready to move forward in this journey and look at this new stuff. I've I've worked through the trauma as, okay, we're always working through trauma, but to a point I've worked through the trauma and gotten to a place where I am in acceptance of myself. And now I'm ready to move forward in this acceptance of myself as a whole human being and see what that life looks like. And so that's when I came out publicly on Facebook.
0: Thank you so much for sharing all that. It's been really interesting because I knew you with your birth name initially. You weren't out to many people and seeing that evolve and you coming out to me saying you could use the name Sam with me without explaining your gender identity and then having more conversations. And it's just been so neat to see you become more you. And I really appreciate your openness and sharing that story with the listeners, who I think it will resonate with some of them or it will just help them understand more the importance of someone being seen as who they are instead of who the world thinks they are or who maybe the individual wants this person to be. So thank you so much for that.
2: I saw something one time and I'm, I don't remember where I saw it. It was the kindest thing you can do for someone that you've known before is ask them, who are you now? tell me who you are now and be open to hearing that. And while that applies for everyone, I think especially for people who come out as trans or non-binary to have that openness, to be able to say, here's who I am now. And to invite people into that space with curiosity and with openness to say, I want to know who you are now is one of the kindest things you can do. And I, I think that's especially true for people who are trans
0: and non-binary. This has been so good. And I know we could keep talking to you for a really long time and we might invite you back in the future. Cause I think we've just scratched the surface on some of the conversations, but is there anything else you were hoping that we would talk about in this conversation as we wrap up? I'll let you check your notes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's what I'm doing as I start moving all the papers around by me. I think
2: there's one story I want to end on and then end with a poem. So this, the story of kind of being okay with myself. And it was the, the first day after my ex had moved out. So when we got divorced, we lived in the same house for a bit. There was, again, there was a lot that happened. There was one day that he moved out and then he had the kids that weekend. And so on this day, I came home and I had taken the kids and gone for while he was packing. There was just a lot of upheaval that was going on. So the kids and I weren't there and I didn't even bring them home. I dropped them off at his parents' house and then came home. And it was just, it was the realization that all of this was real. I can't go back. I really actually am queer I really actually am divorced. I really actually am a single parent and life has shifted in a way. I never, they don't write about this in the strength of the Eve pamphlet. Like that's not in there. <laughs> there. There is no guideline on what to do when you get to this point as a divorced, queer, single parent. <laughs> and I pulled into the house. I was parked out front and I was just sitting there looking at the front door going, I don't know if I can walk in. And again, like this is still very new, very at the beginning of even broaching the self-hatred. Like there's still a lot of intense feelings that I was dealing with and a lot of negative self-talk that was part of my normal everyday life. That negative self-talk, that self-hatred, even that still that internalized homophobia and still the internalized, the conversion therapy thoughts that were there. So I walked, I opened the door and I walked in and it's, it was a very small house. I only made it about five or six steps. I hadn't even made it to the kitchen and I could see into the room where my then ex had been staying, like the kids and I were in a different part of the house and I could see that it was empty. All of his stuff was gone. And it was in this moment where I didn't have, I didn't have a marriage. So, you know, not going to make it a celestial kingdom because that's off the list. I didn't have a marriage in the moment. I didn't have my kids. They weren't with me. And I felt like I had lost everything that I had spent my whole life in the closet trying to keep. I had been trying so hard to keep this idea of what should be, and it was all gone right then. And I was just so overcome that I just, I hit the floor, like, okay, I dropped to my knees. I didn't smack the floor, but I hit the floor, I dropped to my knees and I was sitting there just sobbing. And the only thing I could think to say to myself in the moment, like I put my hand on my heart and I just kept saying to myself, You are enough. Like over and over again, you are enough. And it was so surprising. It was the first time I'd ever really said that to myself. Like all alone, without anything else, you are enough. Nothing else is contingent upon your worth, except you. Like all of that, that was being said to myself in the moment was as I just sat there going, you are enough. I am enough. And that, as I've been doing scholarships and having to kind of write your life story to get scholarships to go to college, one of the things, there was one question that said, how has being LGBTQ impacted your life? And I wrote a nice long paragraph, but I ended it with being able to come out to stand firm in my own self." to belong to myself fully, despite all the challenges that it has brought with it. I am at peace with myself. I am whole. And that is the biggest way that being LGBTQ has impacted my life. I feel free and happy. And going back to therapy, the plug for therapy, anyone who is not in therapy should be. <laughs> like, therapists are amazing and great. And this was, as I've worked through that being enoughness, this journey of the past couple years of learning to be enough. This is a poem that I feel like pulls all together. It's called Mine. There are days when all I am is my own. To no one do I owe time or attention. Responses, explanations, identity, attraction. My phone is not my secretary, and those I love are incapable hands. Maybe not the best, no one is better than I, but capable. And I am my own self. Now, this phenomenon is usually after therapy, when I find it necessary to come home to me. The strength to set aside everything I do not want. The time I am fully me. Today, I am my own. At home, within and without. From here, I will never leave, but for those I love. Each sight, smell, sound, texture, all is unique to me. Each little detail I hold loosely, yet it stays with me. I am my own. I am not a child a parent, a lover, an ex-lover, a secret, a wish, a friend, a culture, a religion, a gender. I am a mixture of blood and soul, a freedom of expression in voice and face and spirituality. I am the trees with bark stripped naked, carrying absolutely nothing of anyone's judgment with cold nipples poking through my flimsy top. I am the raven in the midst of wind, in a world entirely foreign to any human. I am the butterflies in the chest lump in the throat watching the Ferris wheel afraid of heights as I stand on the ground. I am the friendliness of the man on the corner of Fell and Taylor waving at the strangers. I am the mystery of the underground stairs. I am the burning of lungs with the breath held excitedly in a tunnel. I am the curiosity of a three-year-old in a stroller. I am more than a zen balance. I am imbalanced. I am quiet. I am the lonely figure on a crowded trolley belaying out a wee as we travel downhill. I am the goosebumps of being underprepared. I am all the words I do not say because I do not have to. I'm all the kindness I give because I want to. All I am today is mine. There will be time tomorrow for calls and texts and responses and others' frustrations that I do not, did not drop everything for them today, fit into their box. There will be time tomorrow because today I am mine. And I think if anything, the hope, what I want to give by sharing my story is just the hope that healing is possible, that healing from religious trauma and living in a gendered society, healing doesn't mean fixed. It doesn't mean everything is better and sunshines and rainbows, although rainbows are great. But that it's possible to love yourself enough that you'll be okay, that what has happened to you or what's happening around you does not affect your worth. And your worth is your own.
0: What powerful words to end on. Thank you so much, Sam, for coming on, sharing your story, sharing your wisdom and your words. I know our listeners will really benefit from hearing it just like we have. So thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, thanks, Sam. It's rare on the podcast, I think that left pretty speechless, but I would say after this episode, I'm left pretty speechless. So thank you. Thanks for listening.
0: We appreciate you joining us today. If you're liking these episodes, we'd love it if you'd rate and review "Called to Queer on the podcast player of your choice so that other people are more likely to find us. We'd also love it if you'd share our podcast with a friend who could benefit from hearing these stories. If you want to contact us, you can reach us at hello at call You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Called to Queer. See you next time.